Welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today, we are talking with Dr. Camilo Zalamia and Daniela Garcia from the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of South Florida. We are talking about the processes that maintain tropical forest diversity. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the... Wonderful Annie Ellis. Always, I look forward to what you're going to call I know. me. I need a thesaurus. You need, you need one, like <laughs> picking it up. But I do like being wonderful. Good. So there's that. And, so thank you. And you Uh-oh. are. Greg is here working the boards, and Irene is taking your calls. So. I'm sorry. My alarm's going off, and I can't turn it off. But I will. <laughs> so uh, we all know that uh, the weather outside is beautiful right now. Yeah, at this moment, the, right? We're not in the eye of the hurricane, but we're on the eyelashes, I think. Yeah, the sky is beautiful blue. Uh-huh. And, and it's uh, nice and cool. It's only 70, it's 85 degrees, so we need to turn our phones off, I guess, all of us. And, uh, Annie's speaking for herself. Greg well, and I are... No, I just turned mine <laughs> off. Mine was already off. So, Sorry. Annie, Sorry did, to say. did you do anything... Uh, Oh, my gosh, yeah. In fact, it's interesting because I was doing hurricane preparedness without even realizing what I was doing because I'm, you know, I'm trying to get my everything in order to have the house sale and stuff. And so uh, I'm still putting free plants out front. You can always check that out on the Tampa Gardening Swap and the Tampa Gardening Unplugged. And I'm putting those out every day. And, uh, you know, you have to IM me to get the address because I don't just that out there uh but yeah there's a i'm doing a lot of stuff like that a lot so you know as as we all actually should be doing all kind of all the time you know thinking about uh what could fly around like crazy you know or uh maintaining our trees uh or you know tall bushes like i just cut back my giant bougainvillea that was on a a big metal uh what i call a teepee it's like 12 feet tall to hold it um but, you know, it's going to make a big difference in the storm. So that's pretty great. What, yep. what are you doing lately? Well, I mean, besides every weekend you talk <laughs> about something. You go to uh, a talk or do a show um, or... Oh, this was fun. This yeah. uh, past Saturday, I was on the Better Lawns and Gardens radio show Saturday oh. morning. They're in Orlando. And they want edible plants on the lawn in the garden show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Of course, we talked about carnivorous plants. Of course you did. But after that... <laughs> This is real fun. I drove to Citrus Park Mall. Okay. Yeah, yep. I know. The, oh, and you went to the one that we had on? No. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> she I drove, has her store there, you know, that little zero-waste store. Yeah. The, the boxes, the, no. yeah, what yeah, do they yeah. call the uh, containers? Yeah, the container, yeah. shipping container yeah. store. No, no, no. Okay. I drove to uh, Citrus Park Mall at like 9 o'clock in the morning. I don't think they open at oh, 9 o'clock 10, on Saturday. Probably, yeah. And I met somebody from Newport Ritchie because I have a carnivorous plant that is in bloom. Oh. And the plants are either male or female. And oh. I have a female, so I drove 30 minutes. To get the male? Ex- so I, to get the pollen. Oh so this gosh, guy drove 30 minutes south so from cool. Newport Ritchie, and he gave me a little two-inch by two-inch square of aluminum foil. Then when I The back- aluminum foil doesn't change the... That, that's actually like the preferred way to is store it. it. Prefer- yeah. Better than uh, plastic? Yeah, okay. so... Then he gave me two packets. Okay. I drove to a friend's house who also has a female 
uh, in, in, in fl- flower, and I pollinated hers, and then I drove home, and then I pollinated mine. And you I made know babies, and hope, <laughs> and hopefully, in a few weeks, I'll be. A grandfather. Oh, that's so <laughs> fantastic, Kenny. Wow, that is so And it was the first great. time I did it. And the uh, the person, my friend who I pollinated her flower, White. the flowers only are good for about five days. Okay. And I noticed when I was brushing the pollen on. the end. Yes. Yeah. It was not very sticky. Might be an old lady. <laughs> Bad eggs. And then when I got to my house, I did it and I said, oh, wow, that, that was a big difference. Yeah. And Yours uh, was ripe, ready to go. Yeah, each pod... Per, they have maybe 20 pods oh. and they have 20 flowers, which turn into 20 oh, pods and 20 each flowers. pod turns into like a hundred to 150 wow, seeds. Oh, that's amazing. Now, when you did the pollination, did you wrap them to make sure that it stayed in or did you just do it and then just let it go like naturally? Both of us don't have any other male flowers mm-hmm. in the vicinity. And that's the only reason why you would seal that off yeah. so it wouldn't cross-pollinate. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so it wouldn't cross over to other plant materials that you have. Correct. Okay, well, that makes sense. Now, what is the male uh, look like that you are able, it has a different flower or how did you get the pollen from that? Yeah, the female flowers look like footballs and the male flowers look like baseballs. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you gave me a sports analogy. <laughs> that was not what I would be thinking would come from you. Oh, that's funny. Okay. I, I had to look up what a football looks like. <laughs> I would have gone squash and lemon or something <laughs> like that. Oh, that's hilarious. No, no, no. That's it so was, funny. Yeah, it was cool. I'm excited. I, <laughs> I am too. I, I, they're not even my plants. I could get up to like a thousand plants, but honestly, I just want like five to work. Like yeah. if, if, well, exactly. If, if I end up with five extra babies, you know what? Yeah. And, I'll get seeds maybe in a couple of weeks, but then it literally takes six months to two years. For it to ripen? No, to get a plant that I can resell. You know, the, oh, I see what you're it saying. It takes six months to two years seed. to get like a two-inch uh, yeah, uh, Nepenthes pitcher plant. I would have plant. thought two years would have been the real number. Yeah. I mean, it's like whenever I throw my, um, uh, when I I let my, um, oh, amaryllis. I have a lot of uh, amaryllis, uh, beautiful. I have one that's green. It's amazing. And so I, I always let that go to seed. And then I throw the seeds in an area that I have a dedicated bulb bed. And well, I mean, it has bananas in it too, but still. So... And papaya <laughs> and some other things. But but anyway, I throw them in there and it takes many years for them to turn into an actual plant. Yes. You know, I mean, I've never even gotten a bloom at this point and it's been 10 years since I've been doing it. I have plants though. I think I just need to separate them so they can uh, grow better, but maybe we'll have that in a sale. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And speaking of plants. Yes. And diversity. That's right. I have Nepenthes pitcher plants. You have amaryllis. Diversity. Oh, I, bunches of things, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, today we're going to be talking about tropical biodiversity. Yeah, I love tropical. And we're tropical, too. So there's that. So we have uh, Dr. And I believe we're pronouncing these words correctly. <laughs> uh, Dr. Camilo uh, Zalamia uh, is an assistant professor in the Department of Integrative uh, Biology, University of South Florida. And he has a tropical print a plant community ecologist working in the interface of plant microbial dynamics, which is fascinating to me. Uh, and uh, also we have Daniela Garcia, uh, and she is a Colombian or 
Yes. Yeah. She didn't say she. I just put through that in there. A Colombian biologist interested in the processes that maintain tropical uh, forest diversity. And specifically, she is fascinated by how, uh, how microbial interactions with plants can influence forest dynamics in terms of plant function and species distributions, which all of these things that sounds a little sciencey, guys, but all of these things pertain to us because we have a lot of plant materials that will die out if we aren't managing this stuff uh, correctly. So, so welcome. Wel- <laughs> yes, welcome to the show. Uh, Camilo and Daniela. Yes. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Kenny and hi, Annie. Thank hi. you for having us. Hi. We Do are we really pre- happy. Did we pronounce your uh, name correctly? Yeah, perfectly. Oh, good. Perfectly. Yay. Thank, thank you for having us. It's we are excited. Hi, Annie. Hi. Hi, Kenny. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being on. Uh, we're excited that you're going to be here. Um, you know, we we have a little list of, uh, of questions and such, but, you know, if there's always anything that you feel like there's something that's really important that we're missing or you feel like you need to uh, say, just let us know. Uh, but, you know, our first question is uh, what... You, you know, you know Annie, I, I think that just how this conversation between you and Kenny started is just the best way to start our conversation. So Kenny was describing this life cycle of a nephentis or, you know, like a carnivorous plant. And I was just thinking about, you know, like tropical forests and trees and seeds and fruits and and all the time that those, uh, you know, fruits and then seeds need to um, get ripe and then disperse and, and then you know, like how much time it will take from the seed production all the way to having a tree, right? And so uh, Kenny was just talking about months, maybe years. Well, if we go to the tropics and we think about trees, that can be years from centuries, right? And so having, you know, that, that, that same life cycle is true for every single plant in the planet. And then the time frame is a little different. But I, I just thought, well, that's just the perfect description or the perfect starting point for this conversation. Sorry, I caught you, but, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to say that. <laughs> that that's perfect. So um, can you talk a little bit about uh, microbes or what is a microbe? Let's start with that. Yes. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good really great question and and i guess a very simple definition of what a microbe is is something that you cannot see with your naked eye um and so it's a living organism that you cannot see with your living eye with with your naked eye right and and we biologists we tend to put things in boxes or organisms in boxes and name those boxes uh but we can say that bacteria, archaea, uh, fungi, uh, all those are organisms that are too small that we are not able to see them with our naked eyes. All those are microbes or microorganisms. I don't know if Daniela wants to add something, but uh, I guess that's a very um, general uh, definition of what a microbe is. Very good. Uh, I D- Daniela, did you want to add anything? No, not really. I I think that's a pretty uh, accurate description of it. I would add that some arthropods can also be microbes, uh, but yeah. Would that uh, also uh, be involved in the microsia or the, um, yeah, the microsia? Would that be a part of that? 
Hmm. Good question. I'm not totally sure what my crosshair is, but I'm just uh, typing she, she's that. Ta- are you talking about um, like the little mushrooms? Mycelium. Yeah, mycelium, oh. microsia, and, you know, all the underground uh, things that are really living, you know. and so Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So all, all, you know, like every single organisms, organism that is alive, and you cannot see with your naked eye, I guess we can say that that's a microbe yeah. or a microorganism. Yeah, something absolutely. that's living underground that does something for the things that are living above ground. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And so that doesn't really matter where those organisms are living, right? So we have, we have microbes or microorganisms living in the soil, in the dirt, but we also have them living in plant tissues, we also have them living in our own um, organisms. So we have our gut microbiome, right? Yeah. And and actually almost every single uh, living organism will have microorganisms in their surface or their internal tissues. Um, and so all, all them are uh, uh, microbes, yeah. So Camilo, you went to undergraduate school in Colombia in Daniela also said that she's a researcher from Colombia. And I'm thinking about like the Colombian forest. And did both of you make a connection to the microbes and how they affected the plants when you were living there? Or was that something that you learned later? Like how did you figure out like where did that come that from? That this microbial is the microbe the microbes. Yeah, uh, microbes. Are are so important to all of the uh, plant life. Do you want to go first, Daniela? Sure. Yeah, so for me, it was... So I also did my undergrad in Colombia, um, specifically in Cali. uh, And for me, it was in my second semester of undergrad where I took botany and would learn about how mycorrhizae are yes. super important for for plant growth, for helping plants to acquire water, nutrients, and all this stuff. Um, and I just got immediately fascinated by that interaction. And uh, later on, I had the opportunity to work with uh, my undergrad advisor doing my, my honor thesis on uh, precisely uh, how mycorrhizae help plants in tropical dry forests to well grow. Um, so that was, yeah, for me, it was very early on in my, in my career. So I would like for you to explain to the listeners what that means. Uh, I know what it means, but I think that a lot of people are very uh, confused. They see the fruiting bodies of the mycelium. Uh, they, you know, maybe understand a little bit about how it's living and and how it delivers it to the plant materials. But if you could elaborate just a little bit on that, I think that would be super helpful for the public because it's not, it's not just that drain forest or that dry forest that you are in. Uh, It's every place, everything under the ground for every plant and tree. So if you could go. Yes. Perfect. That's a really, really cool question. Uh, I want to start saying that, what you just said about how ubiquitous they are, they're everywhere. All plants have associations of some, some type with fungi. And specifically, mycorrhizae is the term that, uh, that we 
used to refer to the association of a fungi uh, with the roots of plants. So this relationship is usually beneficial for both sides, for the fungi and for the plants. Uh, so for example, the fungi usually gets uh, carbohydrates from, from the photosynthesis that the plants uh, do. Uh, and they get to, you know, have a place to live. Uh, but the plant also gets a benefit. And the benefit is that the mycorrhizae or the fungi um, helps them to acquire water and nutrients uh, in a wider area. So it's like an extension of the roots. Yeah. Basically. So you're saying that all the microsia that's uh, surrounding under the soil that is further from the roots, but then that roots will barely touch it at the end. Does it have to make contact with it? Then they will then reach out beyond and, and draw in whatever that plant is requiring at the time. And how does it know what to do? That is a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are two types of plants. Uh, Mycorrhizae, some mycorrhizae need to be inside of the roots of the plants, but they can also extend. Uh, and the, how they know what to do, it's, we believe, like chemical signaling and what communication. Say that again? Chemical signaling. Okay, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's yeah. okay. I have a sudden um, ear or two, not just an accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they this fungi are not isolated from one another, right? They create a network underground. And that's how plants are connected to each other and they talk to each other uh, with their, myze their associated mycelium, right? Mm -hmm. And they are constantly uh, producing uh, chemical signals, uh, you know, to inform of different uh, situations. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, where's more water or where's more nutrients? Um, I don't know if Candido wants to add something. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I guess this is one of the most fascinating symbiotic relationships yes. that we have in nature. Um, and as Daniela described it very well, is uh, symbiosis that actually happens very commonly in every, every different biome ecosystem that you go and you find a tree, you find a plant, you find a bush, you find a grass, they will have these associations. And actually, you know, something that I, I, I tend to really like quite a lot is um, how words uh, or the origin of those words, words. And when you think about mycorrhizae, mycorrhizae, the term mycorrhizae actually comes from the Greek mycus that means fungus, and then rice, that means root. And so for me, that there is some magic about that, right? It's, it's like a fungus and a root. It's this symbiosis between um, the plants and the fungi. Um, and also, as Daniela mentioned, there are different groups of mycorrhizae. Uh, the two most common ones are ectomycorrhizal. They tend to grow on the surface of the root. And then we have arbuscular mycorrhizae and they tend to grow inside the root tissues. Did you call and it muscular, muscular mycorrhizae? No, arbuscular mycorrhizae or ectomycorrhizae. Okay, thank Ter you. Term terms are not super important here, but mm. what is important for me is that 
not all the plants associate with one or the other. And actually, we uh, agree that, you know, in general, gymnosperms like pines, for example, you know, those big sequoias on, um, on the West Coast, they will tend to associate with ectomycorrhizae, but locally for us, you know, those live oaks, they also associate with ectomycorrhizae. So those are the mycorrhizae um, that live on the surface of the roots. And then uh, most of the flowering plants, you know, like, uh, uh, let me see, uh, you know, you know, like mo most of the flowering plants that we have around, they will tend to associate with arbuscular mycorrhizae. And um, then the association there is that the fungus will grow the hyphae will grow inside the tissue of the uh, of the plant. And then the only other thing that I wanted to add is that, is that this is a symbiosis, but it's, you can also see this as a trade, right? And where the plants are trading something with the fungus. And so the fungus is giving the plant water and nutrients or access to water and nutrients and the plants are giving back to the fungus carbohydrates that they fix through photosynthesis. And so photosynthesis is this process that happens on the leaves. Um, and what plants do is that they actually take CO2 from the atmosphere and they use sunlight to synthesize sugars. And so in other, way, uh, in other ways, what the plants are doing is just paying back the fungus with some sugars, with oh. some food, um, all the nutrients or the water that the fungus is mining in the soil. And so in a way, is this economy going on there where uh, <laughs> the plants will have uh, mechanisms to giving more sugars, so more rewards, paying more for that commodity, and the commodity will be water and nutrient. And so in a way, uh, you know, and I can talk for hours about this, uh, but but it's this symbiosis that is so ubiquitous in nature, so prevalent in nature, uh, because it's really successful. Plants need nutrients, they need water, and the fungus um, or the fungi um, actually need to eat, they need food, and what they eat is sugars, carbohydrates, and the plants can provide that. I love that, that they work together. So good. Yeah. You're listening yeah. to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guests are Dr. Camilo Zalamia and Daniela Garcia from the Department of Integrative Biology at USF. We are talking about the processes that maintain tropical forest diversity. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on air. So, Camilla and Daniela, can one of you describe how diversity relates to sustainability? Uh, sure. Do you want to go ahead, or should I go ahead, Daniela? You can go ahead. So, there are many different ways to... Um, associate or correlate diversity and sustainability. And, and actually, uh, in general, when you think about uh, natural ecosystems, they, they provide different ecosystem functions. Um, and we can think about plants 
working on the on the water cycle or the nutrient cycle or plants you know like for example capturing co2 and a byproduct of that is uh liberating or putting back to the atmosphere oxygen that a lot of different uh organisms in the planet need to um for respiration um and so uh, it depends at which level if we are talking about you know like a very uh local or at the very large landscape level but uh, in general we think in biology that uh, complex and diverse ecosystems will have a wider range of ecosystem functions too and and that is a good way to link um, sustainability and diversity uh, and so and and there are actually studies that that uh, highly uh, suggest that is true that if we have complex um, ecosystem if we have systems that are diverse in in their different interactions so interactions among those different organisms or species that live in those ecosystems um, they will also provide a wider range of um, ecosystem functions and we societies we really rely heavily in those ecosystem functions and so basically uh, i want to just say so what you're saying is the since each one has its own specific job uh each one of these trees plants whatever has each one has a specific job to what portion of that that they do that if we lose one then we're losing that link of what its own specific one is so then the other ones may not have that ability or uh, would they change up their diversity to be able to compensate that, I wonder? Absolutely. That is a really, really good um, sort of like translation of what I'm trying to say in, in, in uh, you know, like simple words. But what, what you just said is perfect. And very often in, in biology or in ecology, we don't think about one species playing a very, very specific role, but, you know, like groups of species playing roles. And, and we have functional groups, you know, like pioneer trees or shade tolerant trees. Uh, but, but sometimes this is actually all the way down to one species playing this key role in the ecosystem that if the species is not there, then the ecosystem can somehow collapse. And, and in biology and in ecology, those are often named keystone species um and and that's at least as a concept um is is something um that that some people rely on when we think about uh sustainability or protection of biodiversity or conservation of biodiversity and can you describe how a microbe can affect and control tree species distribution and the question really is, are we talking about like one microbe or a family of microbes? How, how can they yeah. dictate where trees can live and not live? Yeah, so this is a really, really great question. And it's, it's probably one of the questions that is driving my research agenda. Um, and so the first, the, the short answer is definitely not one microbe. It's a group of microbes. It's a, it's, a, it's a really complex group of microbes. And is the variation of those um, abundances at the 
local and landscape level of those microbes that can determine that some species will do better or not under certain situations. And so one of the beautiful things about microorganisms um, is that, well, it's, it's beautiful, but at the same time is, is challenging, is that we don't know much about what they are doing. And so there are types of microorganisms like mycorrhizae that we tend to put them on this box of mm. good microbes. You know, they help the plants to acquire nutrients. The symbiosis often leads to a positive association. And, and there is this positive link between the plant and the fungi or the fungus, um, right? But we can also think about pathogens and then we can think about fungal pathogens, but we can also think about bacteria that are pathogenic and, and who knows, you know, like viruses and archaea, I know very little about them, but they can also play pathogenic roles. And, and so the, 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 the point there is then, then the interaction, the association between the plant and the microorganism can be negative and can be negative for the plant. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that, you know, people working in agriculture, they're really aware of. And so there are uh, a lot of agricultural pathogens that people will invest millions of dollars just to fight them, right? And to avoid this disease or colonization or infection by a pathogen that will disseminate, um, you know, whatever your your crop production. And, and, and um, plant pathologists really know well how plants can get sick and, and how uh, microorganisms and pathogens in general can uh, just uh, make those plants sick. And what is beautiful is that then is this interaction between the good guys and the bad guys or the good microorganisms and the bad microorganisms that will just um, create this matrix at the landscape level that will determine if let's say a plant species A is able to germinate and then recruit and, and make to the adulthood. Yes. Um, and, and so let's imagine that the seed of this plant lands in a place where there is a bunch of mycorrhizae and, and other uh, potentially good microorganisms. And so that, that seed will most probably germinate and it, get those interactions, those positive interactions that will sort of like nurse this plant all the way to the adulthood, right? But it can also happen that that seed lands in a place where the prevalence of the pathogen for this particular species is high. And so then even if the seed is able to germinate, it will get sick and most probably kill because of disease, right? And so is this interaction between the um, pathogenic microorganisms and the beneficial microorganisms, like mycorrhizae is one of those really good examples that will determine who is thriving and under which conditions. And also the physical environment can, can uh, determine uh, the, uh, uh, 
you know, how those interactions can be positive or negative. I just want to say something really quickly is because when you're talking about all this, so interesting to me, but I also wonder uh, sometimes if the negative and the positive, if they didn't work together in a certain way, that it, that does shoots off another spark to where it has to happen. Just for instance, I mean, basically, if you just say, you know, some uh, seeds have to have a fire, which you might want to look at that as a negative uh, for it to sprout, then, you know, I just wonder about these microbes because I'm sure there's a zillion things things we don't know. So that's all I had to say because yeah. I'm hogging the mic. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I am totally, I am, I, I totally agree with you, Annie. And, and, and so, um, and, you know, just coming back to, to the fire or, you know, like the, the physical environment in which those interactions are happening, you know, if it is really wet or really dry, if the year was a really rainy year or a really dry year, or if we just had a huge hurricane um, that happened, uh, those conditions of the physical environment will change. And of course, uh, plants, but also microorganisms will deal with those conditions. And so they can be either, let's say, more pathogenic or less pathogenic mm -hmm. under certain conditions. Makes you know, like if the temperature sense. is too high or too low, uh, pathogenicity can change. And also that will affect the immune system of those plants. Yeah. So we, we tend to think about the immune system as humans, right? We are weak, our defenses are low, and there is the flu season, and I get the flu. Well, plants can also have weak immune systems for several reasons. And, and so then they can be more susceptible to those pathogenic attacks. And so anyway, you know, probably what I wanted to say is that those interactions are complex. And it's on that complexity that I find a lot of joy in my research. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So let's uh, remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today's guests are Dr. Camilo Zalamia and Daniela Garcia from the Department of Integrative Biology at USF. We're talking about the processes that maintain tropical plant and forest diversity. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. So, Daniela, your research involves fields and, I believe, greenhouse experiments to study microbial communities associated with plants. Daniela, can you talk about some of the greenhouse experiments or experiments that you're doing at USF? Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, they're challenging. That's, uh, I want to begin with that. <laughs> um, so when we talk about uh, science and doing research, uh, we need to think about um, controlling uh, factors for us to be able to determine that the response that we're seeing is because of what we did to the environment or to the species or et cetera that we're dealing with. Uh, I don't know if that was clear. <laughs> yes. So basically you're just saying it's it's a controlled environment. It's not what it would be yes. in the forest. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So when we really want to assess uh, the effect of a particular factor, let's say uh, temperature or in my case, the effect of microbes uh, in plant growth, um, we need to kind of isolate that system and try to control our, our best uh, for us to be 
well accurate on seeing the effect of that factor. So for my research in USF uh, back then, um, I I wanted to see what the um, effect of um, of two different uh, kind of soils would have um, in tomato growth. Oh. Um, and in the kind of microbiome associated to the tomato uh, or tomato plant as, as, as the whole, right? Uh, and basically I used forest soil and I used an agricultural soil from a farm. And the rationale behind that is that the microbes associated to those soils, to so those two different soils will be different. Um, Let me interrupt you. Did you get it from an organic farm or did you get it from a standard chemically used farm? An organic farm. Good. Okay. Thank yes. you. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the rationale behind that was, was that, you know, the, that the microbes associated to the farm will be different than the microbes associated to the forest soil. And then I, I did a, a greenhouse experiment uh, with those soils. And I inoculated the tomato uh, plants with those two different sorts to see. Unfortunately, uh, my plants died oh. in the greenhouse experiment because uh, it was summer. It was really hot. Tomatoes got, are tough uh, in summer. Yeah. Tomatoes are super tough in summer. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't like long days uh, to produce fruits. Uh, they need a lot of nutrients, uh, which... Uh, obviously makes sense because we have breed them to do that. Right. Um, but that was that's just an example of how we would uh, try to answer those kind of questions. Uh, now, a more successful example for me uh, was for from my undergrad uh, research. What I did was uh, kind of the same, but in the field. So I uh, grew plants in a greenhouse in a sterile conditions. Uh, and then I took those plants to the forest to see how they would grow and how their growth would uh, uh, be impacted uh, from being in the forest under different conditions in the forest. And uh, sure enough, some plants did a lot better oh. than, than others. And there was this plant that we did really, really poor uh, when, when that species was... Um, Planted what was or it? Transplanted. Uh, that's Aguazuma uh, olifolia. I don't know what's the common name for that. Zumolifolia? So it's, it's a very common tropical pioneer yeah. tree. Uh, I don't think that it has a Florida distribution. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. So that wouldn't do it well in our forest because it's not associated with this. <laughs> yeah, most probably. Yeah. Most probably. And then they were they were really susceptible to being close to other, to oh, adult plants plant. of the same is, species. Is, did you put in a Z plant? This is the one they call Zemocolos, uh Zemifolia? Uh No. Okay. No, it's not the same. Okay. Yeah, no. So, um, so Camilla and uh, Dinelle, we got a couple of emails. MJ asks, when at home gardening, should we think about microbes and fungi in our soils? Yes. 
Absolutely. 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 Hundred percent. And, and what and what do we mean by think? <laughs> should, <laughs> we should just think about it and hope that our tomatoes grow. <laughs> Give um, them a note. No. Write them a note. Don't do that. So, so we did get, we did get another message from Bill and he asked, What influences healthy microbes in the soil? So I yes. guess that's kind of where we're getting. How yeah. how okay. do we encourage good things do we to be in our soil? Something. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess there are different ways to, to tackle this couple of questions, right? And, and and there is this notion about healthy soil and what actually healthy soil means. Uh, very often it means um, diversity. And so we, we are connecting this to a point that we discussed, it, discussed earlier today, um, that is diversity. And so when, when those soils harbor a lot of diversity in terms of their microorganisms. Um, most probably that means that when the plants um, that are going to be planted in our backyards, in our soils, um, we'll find the good ones, um, as most probably also will find some of the bad ones. But if those good connections, those interactions are established, um, the uh, probability of having a successful plan growing in our backyard is, is most probably increasing. And so something that we are doing very often um, when we just, you know, like, for example, um, add Randap to our um, uh, backyard is yeah. that we are just killing all those microorganisms and we are just bringing the conditions in which only one plant is this grass that is very often not not even native uh will just be a really good competitor so let me wait a minute i want to stop you real quick so you just said that if you use roundup you're killing the microbes not just the plant material that you're putting it on absolutely okay so i want everybody to hear that and and so (laughs) And and that, I, I mean, I have my own biases, but yeah, that is bad, right. bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Thank you. Agreed. Anything that you do uh, like that, that's going to kill, like even the vinegar, the salt, the dawn that everybody's like mixing up, is killing all the microbes yeah. in the soil. So, uh, so it just kills it. So, so, so Camilla and Daniela, we have another email and it's from Ryan and he wants to know, um, so soil solarization is like a thing, yes. is a practice that many people recommend where you sometimes like lay plastic over the soil. You just yeah. basically bake the soil yeah. because you want to kill the bad things. But can you guys talk about, I miss, you know, what we just talked about, it's killing everything. Exactly. It's killing the good yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's an expert on that, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, when I was planning my, my greenhouse experiment here, uh, I needed to have controls, obviously, and controls in an experiment, uh, in my experiment, particularly, would mean that I needed to sterilize the soil and right. I cooked it. Basically, uh, using a different method, uh, but one of the methods that agriculture, you know, people that works in the agriculture uh, uh, use is just lay the soil a uh, little moist. They put a, 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 a black plastic and let it cook with, you know, the, the sun and, and uh, that will kill everything or mm-hmm. Under a certain level, like, probably like about yeah. a foot down or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. It's, a, it's like a shallow layer of soil, and they just uh, let it cook, and it will it will kill most of the things. Uh, soil you really don't get like hundred percent sterilized soil, but uh, you will kill a lot of the things, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And my personal feeling 
uh, with that, my gut feeling is that, uh, as Camilo mentioned, um, soils can, well, soils have good and bad things and they do different things, right? Uh, and if you have a good portion of good things, they're probably going to be protecting or the chances for the plant are going to be better if there is good things associated with them. So if we think of a crop that we grow uh, under with a sterilized soil, with that cooked soil, um, and then by any chance a pathogen arrives to that soil and there's nothing else good in the soil, well, the chances are that those plants are going to get really sick really fast. Um, so my personal feeling with that is that I don't think it is a, a, a super good practice if you want to grow uh, crops in like a wide area in an open area. Yeah, I think that one of the things that they're trying to do is kill the weed seeds, uh, so they're not going to be weeding. So, um, yeah. So I think that that's part of what they're trying to do. But I a thousand percent agree with but, you that you're killing all those things, good and bad. So it's like, I, it doesn't sound like a good idea to me. It never has. Can I can I just jump and add a personal uh, experience Please. here? And so in a few minutes, I totally agree. I totally agree with. I totally agree with Annie and Daniela. And um, so something that I did with my wife, um, we bought this house here in Tampa in Seminole Heights not long ago, like a, a year or so ago. And the the previous owners were just adding Roundup, and so they were having this beautiful grass in in the front of the house and the backyard. And we decided, no, this is not us. We we don't want to do that. And since then, it's only a year and a few months ago since then i have counted myself in the backyard at least 10 different species of plants and so what that means is that um you know like getting a more diverse soil but also getting other species to recruit will increase you know the number of plants flowers that you will see and then I, I also think it really depends on what do you want to have in your backyard, right? And 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 some of those species are probably introduced species, and so some of them are probably not what you want. Uh, but it, it is always back to the question: what exactly do you want? Um, and I am a firm believer that diversity is always better. Um, yeah, you don't know what's missing until it's gone. <laughs> exactly. 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 All right. So, uh, Camilla and Dinella, we, j- we just have a couple of minutes left. Could you talk a little bit about the places you go to study your tropical uh, biodiversity? Yeah. Um, sorry, Daniela, I will jump here um, a little bit. And so, actually, I, I met Daniela. Uh, back in one of those places. And that is the tropical lowland forest across the Panama Canal area in Central America. Um, that place is, is magical for several reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that more than a century ago when Americans and actually the French started to build the canal and then the Americans uh, 
finish the uh, construction of the canal, they they very quickly saw the the importance of the watershed, and they they very quickly saw the importance of water, and so in in terms of maintaining the water cycle at the at the landscape level, um, they saw the importance of protecting the forest across the canal, and so a lot of portions of forest in Central America where the Panama Canal is located. So this connection between the Pacific Ocean and the Caribbean that actually uh, makes possible a lot of the trade that happens globally and, and really is important in terms of economical value for the planet and, and his trade. Um, uh, it's possible because there is forest uh, all along the canal. And so the Smithsonian Institution, the same that we have here in DC, and when you go to DC, you can go and visit them all. Uh, well, that same institution has a tropical branch and that tropical branch is the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. And they have different field stations um, in Panama, but also in other regions um, in the planet, in other tropical regions in the planet. But the main branch is the Panamanian one. And in the middle of the Panama Canal, there is a, a little island called Barro Colorado Island that is probably, I'm biased, but it's probably the most studied tropical place in the planet. Mm. And it's owned and is managed by the Smithsonian Institution. Um, um, and so most of my research agenda is um, tropical and is done in Panama and um, is done in collaboration with scientists from the Smithsonian Institution and local uh, communities and local scientists in Panama. Uh, I actually met Daniela uh, when I was a postdoc uh, a few years ago um, at the Smithsonian Institution. Today, I am an assistant professor at um, the University of South Florida, but I'm also a research associate at the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, so I, I keep my research agenda very, very um, active in Panama. And, and Daniela uh, came to Panama as a, as a young scientist, young um, student to work with me and, and, and some colleagues around those questions about seed microbial interactions. I, I have also done- we were gonna, Excuse sorry. me, we weren't gonna interrupt you because we're almost out of time. So sure. Kenny needs to say something. <laughs> well, I was, <laughs> so I was just gonna ask, um, why was USF interested in your research when you first you know, came here? Are they interested in tropical biodiversity or do they want to apply it to agriculture? Good question that I don't know the answer. Um, I, I believe I believe they wanted or they needed a botanist. And I'm, I'm a, a, you know, like a, if I describe myself, I describe myself as a plant ecologist rather than um, any other um, tag that you can add to my name. Um, so they needed someone that was able to uh, teach botany related classes and eco ecology related classes. And I guess uh, for for whatever reason, and probably Annie touched a little bit about this, um, our um, Florida ecosystems are close to the tropics. And so having someone with tropical background can be appealing for uh, some of our students. Uh, but I don't really know the answer. <laughs> 
Well, I think you that was a good one. my chair. That was a good one. No, no, I think that worked out perfectly. Yeah, so thank you, uh, Dr. Camilo Zalamia and Daniela Garcia from the Department of Integrative Biology at USF for being our guest today. We really enjoyed it. And uh, Camilo, I assume you are oftentimes taking postdocs and graduate students and maybe even undergraduate students. Can you tell the listeners where they can send their children to? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Get volunteers. I, yeah, absolutely. Or, do, or you can get a degree out of it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's true. So, well, first of all, thank you, Kenny and Annie. This has been a really, really nice hour speaking um, to you. And so um, you can actually go and look at the Integrative Biology website, the USF Integrative Biology website, and on the faculty list, you can find my name. Um, and then under my name, there is my website, that is salamia.com. Um, and so then you can, um, you know, look a little more about the research um, that we do in my lab, the people that is uh, working in my lab, as Daniela is, for example. Um, and they can always contact me by mail, um, paulcamilozi at usf.edu. Perfect. Uh, and uh, uh, your last name is spelled Z-A-L-A-M-E-A. And we appreciate yeah, uh, both right. of you for being on the show. And uh, thank you so much. I wanted to also Thanks throw for out having us. perhaps you might want to try Everglades tomatoes. They grow all year round. <laughs> so that's yeah. it. Yeah. But we're out of time. Yes. So. We learned that. <laughs> thank you. Already. Thanks for having <laughs> us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being on. Thanks. And uh, we yeah. do have an email from Gib, and he's... This is about from the beginning of the show. He asked, what type of carnivorous plant are you talking about pollinating? I had my Drosera flower, which is a sundew, two or three times, and my Venus flytrap flower about five times. I took a small brush and tried to self-pollinate with each flower. I guess that won't work. Well, Gib, actually it does work because you can self-pollinate sundews and Venus flytraps, and uh, you should be able to get seeds rather quickly, and you don't need to uh, cold store them. As soon as you get seeds, you can just surface so and you're good to go and that brings me to my next point on saturday september 2nd i will be at bach tower oh, cool. and my presentation i love bach tower. that is fully booked so it's you wonderful so you cannot register for my talk but there will be a plant sale after the talk and uh, everyone is welcome to Maybe attend Maybe you can stand it. far away and hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you can put your ear up towards right. the door. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org. Donating through the tip jar will keep us on air. Stay tuned for the next hour to hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mabili. And make sure to tune in next Monday at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show, where we will be asking you to submit your questions about soil and peat. That's going to be interesting. Follow our Facebook page to learn more. And I am Annie Ellis. And remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye-bye. This is WMNF Tampa. <laughs>